This Breaking Views podcast is sponsored by Refinitive. The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Rogers News. Hello, I'm Jennifer Saba, and you're listening to The Exchange from Reuters Breaking Views. I have the pleasure of welcoming back to the program Scott Galloway. The NYU professor is out with a new book called The Algebra of Happiness. It's a guide for young people, but a few of his pointers, get a college education and move to a big city, are topical and can extend to other areas where Galloway has been very prescient. For starters, he correctly predicted that Amazon would choose either New York City or Washington, D.C. as its second headquarters. Turns out, Amazon went with both because, in part, big cities attract talent. We discuss Jeff Bezos' firm and a variety of other subjects, from higher education in the middle class to the likes of Facebook and Google under attack by regulators. Welcome back to The Exchange, Scott. Um, Thank you. I remember following you when you launched a proxy campaign against the New York Times. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> oh, wow. So that's, this was probably what, more than real a decade. Re- you yeah. should be in journalism. That's real research. Well yeah. done. So, and this was at the height of the financial crisis. Yeah. You won a board seat. It yeah. was a nasty. Two board seats. Two board seats. That's yeah. right. It was nasty. You're a cage rattler. Yeah. And I here guess. you are now with this new book, The Algebra of Happiness. There you it go, seems like right? a 180 to me. Yeah, it's a hard left, but I don't, you know, I didn't want to have on my tombstone break up big tech and, and you know, sell kill the, the New, New York, York Times. Times. <laughs> <laughs> I never wanted to kill it. I wanted to save it, although I'm not sure it needed saving. So I, I was reading it and a couple things jumped out at me. And there yep. were really um, a couple of key points that I think are kind of good launching off places to start. But one thing is that in several points in the book, you yep. talk about your love of UCLA yeah, and just the whole University of California system. Sure. The time you were going through it, yep. you were a mediocre student in yep. high school. Yep. You kind of talked your way into UCLA. Yep. yep. Um, and you're very, um, those are, it was very formative for you. Yeah. Um, to me, it seems like those days are gone. Like getting yeah. into college, yeah. you know, based on that type of moxie, it, it seems practically impossible if you're an 18 year old. So, I mean, what's your view on just kind of the yeah. educational system? I mean, that's a big question, but... Sure, yeah. So it's easy to... I think it's human nature to credit your hard work and your character for your successes and to blame the markets for your failures. And yeah. I have no such delusions. I have two things that... There's two reasons I'm here with you right now, and then I get to live in Manhattan and have uh, you know, a rewarding uh, life. And that is, one, the irrational passion for my well-being and my mom. I was raised by a single immigrant, uh, immigrant mother who lived and died a secretary, but we had a nice life. It's not a sob story. And two, the generosity and vision of um, the California taxpayers in the regents of the University of California. Yeah. I got into, I was a mediocre student in high school, but I didn't test well either. And initially I got rejected from the University of California and I wrote an appeal and I told them the truth that if I didn't get in and I couldn't live at home, I couldn't afford to go to college and I was going to be installing shelving. That was my job uh, out, of, out of high school. And and they called me and said, um, you know, you're our, they, I mean, I'm, I remember the exact call. They said, you're a native son of California and we're letting you in. And I mean, it was just transformative for me. My yeah. total tuition undergrad and grad was $7,000 UCLA and Berkeley. And the thing I worry about, to your point, is I was an unremarkable kid who was given, unre- you know, remarkable opportunities, and I worry that America has fallen out of love with the unremarkables. It's, it's never been a better time to be remarkable. If you're exactly. remarkable, that is true. If that you're remarkable, really even from a poor community, uh, you can get into Harvard. Yeah. These schools find you, and you can find these schools online now. 
but we've fallen in love with what I call the unremarkables. And the reality is, despite all the well-publicized stories on remarkable young people, the majority of us, you know, 99% of us are unremarkable. And I, I worry that these folks uh, don't have the same opportunity as people constantly say, I would never get into the, my college now. And they brag about it. That's not a good thing. Right. On right. average, your kid's probably going to be similar to you. And that means he or she's going to a lesser university than you. And I bet UCLA is way more expensive now than it was when you were going to. Skyrocketing tuition, yeah. the only sector that has increased its prices faster than inflation then education is healthcare. So I wouldn't have had the confidence to take on the kind of doubt load. And, and quite frankly, I'm part of the problem now. I teach 180 kids on a Monday night. We charge them $7,000 each. That's $1.2 million in tuition, mostly taken on in debt on young people. That's $100,000 a night to listen to me rant like this for three hours. And I'm not a modest person. I'm good at what I do. Yeah. But that's not sustainable, nor is it equitable. Well, um, this is a good kind of segue into some other pieces of advice that you give, which is, and, and for young people right, yep. that are making their way out, um, move to a big city. Yeah. But big cities, they're hard to live in. Yeah. They're expensive. Sure. They're, um, you know, I do understand from like a job standpoint why people, yep. you, you're recommending people to go there. So there's that. So you have um, go to college, get credentials, which yep. you recommend, which is expensive. Move to a big city, which is expensive. And then some other pieces of your advice um, are, you know, try and get uh, buy stock, try and buy yep. real estate when you can. Again, a very expensive thing. And when I stand back and look at it, it sounds and seems like... Um, Easy for me to say. <laughs> yeah. well, but also, how Increasing realistic, yeah, yeah, how realistic is that? Sure. So getting harder and harder, but the ROI is still there. So let's take them one by one. Gets, I, I call it certification, recognizing that college isn't for everybody. But whether yeah. it's a class three driver's license or a degree in, uh, you know, become an esthetician, anything that certifies you on your LinkedIn profile that separates you from the general workforce that is making about $8.50 you know, $8. an hour. Right. And the reality is, and it's not a good thing, we have a caste system in the United States. We like to think we don't have one. We do. And yeah. it's called higher education. So show me a kid's zip code and his degree, and I'll show you how much money that person is going to make. A Harvard grad living in San Francisco by the time they're 30 is probably going to be making $150,000 a year. A junior college dropout in Alabama is lucky if they're making $50,000 by the time they're 30. So a city, you get, well, first off, get certified. Even as expensive as college is, if you can figure out a way to get to a decent slash good slash great college, it's still worth it. And, and fortunately, we've been soaking all the surplus out of that. The second thing, two-thirds of economic growth over the next 30 years are going to happen in a small number of super cities around the nation. I, the analogy I use is I fool myself into thinking I'm a decent skiing or a, a decent skier or a decent surfer when I'm at a place with an offshore breeze and perfectly breaking waves or fresh snow. You want to get to a place where, quite frankly, if you're any good, uh, there's an updraft of economic activity. I think you'd rather be good in New York or in San Francisco than great in Des Moines, Iowa. Mm -hmm. There's just going to be more opportunity. And you're also competing with the best and brightest. Mm -hmm. So just as you play tennis with someone who's better than you, you're your game naturally rises, get to a place where everyone is a federer of their respective community. It's not easy, but when I moved here right out of UCLA, I could live with three three people in a one bedroom. You yeah. can do that. Once you start collecting dogs and kids, you got to move to Montclair. You're, you're, <laughs> right. you're punched out of big cities, so do it while you're young. You know, I was kind of hoping maybe you could talk a little bit about Operation Varsity Blues, because this all seems to kind of feed into each other. 
Well, there's a lot. There, it's the the scandal around the bribery scandal, and you know, they call it the Aunt Becky scandal. Is it's a confluence of a lot of things. One is you. Can, I can kind of I can empathize with the parents. You see how important college is and how yeah. hard it is. You want you the can, best for your kids. You can make yeah. these incremental rationalizations around. So you get your kid an SAT tutor. Is that fair? Because yeah. poor kids can't afford that. You you get counselors and consultants. I was supposed to, I was recommended that we get a consultant for my four year old when when he was applying to pre K here in, in New York in City. New York yeah, and I right, refused right. thinking I was honorable and that was ridiculous and then my son got rejected from all seven schools we applied to. So you can see how you start to make these yeah. incremental decisions now, bribing someone or paying someone to take your son's SAT and and funneling money to a coach through a nonprofit. I mean that's just outright fraud. But you can see how it happens. The, there's also fault in the university system. As an academic, we've become drunk on exclusivity. So rather than thinking of ourselves as public servants, we think of ourselves as luxury brands. And at the beginning of every school year, we brag about how impossible it is to get in. I, I, I would equate that to the head of a homeless shelter bragging that they turn away 95% of their homeless every yeah. night. Harvard brags that it only admits 5%. Stanford brags that it only admits 4%. Stanford has not increased their seats in 30 years, despite the fact that the number of people who have applied has increased threefold. The head of Harvard admissions will claim that they could double the size of their incoming freshman class, and that sacrifice inequality. And my viewpoint is with a $38 billion endowment, then why wouldn't you? Yeah. So we need a different gestalt among academics who are drunk on exclusivity. We need to realize we're public servants and massively increase the number of seats so it doesn't lead to this well, crazy Well, actually, let me, let me stop there and go back to the UC yep. system, too, yep. because the UC system, is that's incredibly difficult to get into. Very and hard. It is, it's also exclusive, and that was yep. founded on a public sense it's of supposed duty. supposed to be a public good. Republic good. You yeah. got in because you were a son of California. And that you were was, in the you know, top. At, when I applied, it was if you were in the top third. Yeah. Now it's probably the top three yeah. percent of kids in high school. So, I, but my point is, it's not just Harvard and Stanford and yep. the, the private Ivy League or you know Ivy League like type of institutions. Yep. It's institutions that were founded on public public good. Public good. So, so there's varying degrees. And by the way, so for example, Harvard. If there's a study, and I'm going to defend University of California because it's it's hard to you know broad brush all universities. There is a study every year that shows income diversity. So, thirty-eight of the thirty-eight of the top hundred schools in America, including several Ivies, have more students from the top one percent of income earning households than from the bottom sixty percent. So they're basically the seasoning or the you know the finishing school for the rich, mm -hmm. and that's what a lot of the best colleges have become. Harvard actually is one of the top ten most diverse from an income. They have a lot of kids from low-income households. Yeah. Seven of those top 10 schools are University of California schools. Berkeley will graduate more kids from low-income households than the entire Ivy League combined every mm. year. So I would argue the University of California, we're still, you know, we're, we're, we still have a long way to go, but we're doing, I think, a pretty decent job. There's another big issue here, and that, quite frankly, is this overpaid but underperforming union called Tenure. Hmm. Schools are have to put aside some. Are you tenured? You're a professor at. at I'm not. I can be fired at any moment. <laughs> okay. So okay. I'm I'm jealous of my tenured yeah. colleagues, but with tenure, schools have to set aside millions of dollars because they acknowledge they're about to become ridiculously unproductive for the remainder of their careers. Yeah. We have social services for the undereducated, food stamps, welfare. In my view, we have social services for the overeducated, and it's called tenure. And no one has made the connection or the direct connection between tenure, skyrocketing costs, and student debt. So there's a lot 
going on here. So let's talk about that middle band because I yeah. feel like this is just an issue politically as well right now. Yep. Um, and particularly as we're gearing up for the 2020 election and antitrust is gaining a lot of steam yep. in these conversations. Yep. Um, and then of course, big tech is sort of the big target of antitrust. Sure. Um, and I'd love to get your opinions on this because you, your last book before yep. you, it was on Apple, Amazon, Google, and um, Facebook, you kind of tackle this. Um, that was two years ago when that yep. came out. Um, and you sort of argued that the EU is at the forefront of all of this yep. for a variety of reasons, including that they have less to lose, right? Because yep. most of these companies are American, sure. et cetera. Um, where do we stand now, I mean, on the regulatory front? I mean, where do you think things are progressing? Well, so do the, you? there's a lot of foot stamping, uh, stomping, but there hasn't been much action in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And just as I think all the great conflicts or the huge conflicts of the 20th century broke out in continental Europe, I think the war against big tech is breaking out in continental Europe. And it's simple math. We're net gainers in the U.S. from big tech. That doesn't mean we shouldn't have the important conversations we're having around breaking them up, about monopoly abuse, about anti-competitive behavior, about weaponization of our these platforms to pervert our elections. I mean, there's a lot of important conversations we're having here. But if you had to say net, we're probably net gainers in the U.S. There are idols. They create a lot of economic activity. A lot of us, our 401ks are better off. A lot of us know people who go to work for these firms. They inspire these competitive ecosystems. The word net is a dangerous word because pesticides are probably a net positive, but we still have an FDA. Yeah. Uh, fossil fuels are probably net positive, but we still have emission standards. Right. For some reason, we've decided that if Facebook is a net positive, we should leave it alone. In the in Europe, I would argue that they're not net gainers from big tech. They get all of the downside, the anti-competitive behavior, the job destruction, the tax avoidance. But there are very few university buildings or hospital wings named after Facebook or Google billionaires in Europe. So they say, OK, we're getting all the downside, but we're not getting much of the upside. So that has stiffened their backbone. And you're seeing top line tax proposals out of France. You're seeing additional editorial liability in Germany. You're seeing um, UK saying, you know what, we're going to put together a task force and look at how we regulate these guys. This has just gotten out of hand. I think in the next 12 months, you're likely going to see either a Latin American nation or a small European nation outright ban one or more of these. They're just going to decide, all right, our, our teens will be pissed off for a couple of weeks, but net net, we're better off without this firm. So two years ago, though, there, there was there was still this stuff kicking around, obviously, yep. with Facebook and, and the Russian meddle, meddling in the yep. election, et cetera. To me, the, the drumbeat has gotten a lot uh, louder. Yep. And I want to, is your background in branding and yep. marketing, yep. where do these firms stand now in 2019? Yep. Um, in terms of, yes, you're right, people yep. use these products all the time. I use the products all the time. Um, but to me, it feels like there's this growing recognition of that these, even within the own co their own companies, like yeah. Alphabet, like the employees are starting to get upset about certain yeah. things, you know. Yeah, they walk out on themselves. They walk out on themselves. So yeah. there's this kind of, you see the tension there. Yeah. Where are these companies in terms of branding and marketing and basically their image? So there, uh, there's been a conscious uncoupling. Uh, Tim Cook has recognized an opportunity and has starched his hat white and said, we're going to we're going to talk about privacy. Yeah. And it's a little bit like all of a sudden Larry and Sergey getting very um, concerned with device addiction. It's a little bit hypocritical exactly. and convenient. Yeah. 
But it, just from a pure branding standpoint, it's genius because the iOS platform pulls about 80 data points a day from your phone. Android pulls 1,000 or 1,200, and that's why they don't need to charge $1,300 for a phone. So the, the, and Apple has walked the walk. They refuse to hand over the keys or the backdoor uh, uh, key or hack to a terrorist iPhone, which I, I thought was the wrong thing to do, but they are quote unquote walking the walk. It was a brilliant brand decision. So I would argue Apple has been effective kind of consciously uncoupling from the negative mantra of big tech. Well, not only uncoupling, but taking pot shots at yeah, Facebook. Yeah, going after them. They're, they're directly. literally directly going, going after, after them. Mark and then Facebook, the best thing that happened to Google, which has monopoly power and is pretty frightening when you look at it, is Facebook. Because Facebook has become the ultimate heat shield for the rest of big tech because they've been the most tone deaf and they are focused on one thing and one thing only and that is shareholder return. Yeah. And by the way, they're geniuses at it. I think Mark Zuckerberg will go down as one of the greatest business people of all time. He'll also go down as being a net negative for humanity, our society and the economy. Uh, but Facebook, the, the brand, if you will, has never been worse, but there's a dissonance. Consumers don't really care. And this is the problem with monopolies. There's 2.7 billion people on Facebook properties. We're all there. So it's easy to talk a big game, and then where do people go to express their outrage? They go to Instagram, or they go to Facebook. Because in terms of social, it's a monopoly. And also, if you're an advertiser, who I think is the real customer, you don't really have the option to go to another platform. I think if, if P&G were to say, we're, 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 we're stopping all advertising on Facebook properties, they would be lauded for the principled stand in the media, and the next day their stock would go down because people would wonder, well, how are they going to drive traffic to Tide.com or to the Tide to the Tide page on Kroger.com. So this is the danger with monopolies, is they aren't subject to the same scrutiny or competitive pressures as other companies. Do you? I mean, do you think these things happen in in very small turns, though? I mean, mm -hmm. let's talk about the brand again of the damage of Facebook. I think more and more people are aware of it. And, yeah. And you're right; their user numbers are still either flat in North America or they crept up a little bit. The core platform. The core they're, platform. They're up across their other platforms. Yeah, no. WhatsApp, well, let, Instagram. Let, let's talk about just kind of the Facebook core yep. core platform yep. here for a second. Um, I mean, the thing that's interesting that I would really like to know, yep. and, which is really kind of the heart of all of this, is how much time are people spending on these platforms now, right? Sure. And my guess, and, and I think Mark Zuckerberg has publicly stated this, and that it the time spent is going down. And like yep. that seems to be a real worry for them. Yep. It's like you may still have your Facebook account, but you're not logging on every day, three times a day. Yep. Maybe you check it once a week. And to me, that's a danger, right? Because then that's a danger for shareholders. For or, yeah, for yeah, well, yeah. for shareholders yep. and for Facebook itself. Yep. Not not for me. Not, yep. you know, who cares? I mean, because the yep. utility of Facebook, it's not like Google where. I need my Gmail account. Just yeah. tell you, I need I need the search. And I, I love their maps. Yeah. Facebook, you could come or go and not really. It's not going to be it's not as a, a hole yeah. in my life if yeah. I don't have it. Yeah, but I would argue that it brings more joy and it's become a kind of a must-have among aspirational brands and influencers globally with Instagram. With I would Instagram, argue, right. I would argue that utility you're talking about that you and I get from Google Maps and from Google Search, they a lot of users, especially in Europe, get from WhatsApp. WhatsApp has kind of become their default telco. Yeah. So Facebook is pretty, pretty darn powerful. And even though the core platform isn't growing its user base, it's finding new ways to monetize that data. The company, despite all the outrage in the press, 
I don't see any evidence that the business is slowing down. Mm-hmm. If you looked at Facebook's numbers, you wouldn't know there's anything wrong. Well, what about Mark Zuckerberg's uh, whole idea, we're going to completely change the model? That's that's how I've read his yeah. recent blog posts and you know uh, television appearances, what have you, where it's like, okay, we want, I, I did this big, huge, open connected world and now I'm pulling back and what I realize yep. is it should be a smaller private network and yep. my guess is he's doing that because he sees the tea leaves about what's going to happen with the big openness. Sure. By tying up the backbone of Facebook, WhatsApp and Messenger with encrypted messages, yeah. he can abdicate responsibility for editorial because they're encrypted. They won't be able to look at them. Yeah. He also is taking a page out of Snap and really more so WeChat's book, the right. private ephemeral messaging is probably the future because kids kids want to be young and dumb, as we all were at that age, and most of us still are now, and we want some level of security and encrypted messaging. He's also, in my opinion, conjoining triplets such that he can claim, if you try and break us up, you're going to kill the whole thing. Hmm. If you try and split up the triplets... So I think it's a prophylactic against antitrust. I think it's a smart business move. I also think it's dangerous. Mm-hmm. Keep in mind that... The attorney general in different states are looking into the merger, the tie-up of T-Mobile and Sprint, because it's going to bring together 130 million people on one platform. But tying up these three platforms on uh, Facebook is going to bring together the communications backbone of 2.7 billion people. We have some big issues here. And I've spent, I've been to Washington 10 times in my life until last year, and I've been 10 times in the last six months. Because all of a sudden they want to speak to academics and talk about this a lot. And I'm hopeful. I don't believe the world is what it is. I believe the world is what we make of it. And when I meet with Senators Warren and Senators Bennett, I think they're incredibly impressive, thoughtful, sincere people that want to do something. But here's the problem. We might be outgunned. There are 88 full-time lobbyists from Amazon in Washington. There are money has taken over Washington. These issues are incredibly complex, yeah. and only 4 to 7%, depending on how you categorize our elected officials, even have any background in technology or engineering. So they all just, they're overwhelmed. They don't understand yeah. this stuff. So it's kind of the perfect storm of bad things. Now, Elizabeth Warren is the kind of the, the I would call it the intellectual thought leader around the stuff. She's the first person who's actually said, this is how you would break them up. But even looking at the presidential candidates, they're all talking a big game. Yes, I'm increasingly concerned about the concentration of power. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, we need to look into it. I mean, none of them have, other than Senator Warren, have really put any meat on the bones around this means. There's no impending legislation. This is this is pure and simple antitrust. In America, we have a long and proud history that when a company becomes an invasive species and starts killing small companies in the crib and prematurely euthanizing big companies, we step in and break them up. We did it with AT&T. We did it with the yeah. Seven Sisters in the oil industry. For some reason, we seem to have lost the script here. And they're very good at, at heading this off. They're likable. Microsoft was not likable. Bill Gates and Steve Ballmer were incredibly unlikable people in the 90s, and the DOJ moved in. And by the way, if the DOJ hadn't moved in on Microsoft, we'd all be saying, I don't know, bing it. Google would have never gotten out of the crib. So the object of everyone's affection now in the innovation economy is here because of antitrust action. Antitrust is, we've been taught to believe it's somehow socialist or anti-competitive. It's key. It's a key component of competition. And we are so far overdue in terms of breaking up these guys. I think it would solve 60, 70, 80% of the problems we're talking about here. Um, I want to turn to Amazon because you were 
very prescient on this um, call where you basically said they're going to pick their second headquarters in New York City or somewhere in the New York metro area. They did. It turned out to be a complete disaster on both ends, I I have to say, for New York City and for Amazon. What do you make of this situation? So I said it was going to be New York or D.C. And I got it wrong. Oh, it was was both. Okay. I said it's either going to be New York or D.C. But my rationale, my logic was much more base. I've been on the board of eight public companies and I've been on dozens of private company boards. And I've been through four formal HQ relocations as a board member. And it all comes down to one thing in retrospect, even though we didn't realize it at the time, simply put where the CEO wanted to spend more time, where he or she was chairman of their golf club, where his next wife was living. Mm -hmm. This is a 54-year-old man who is the wealthiest man in the world, has the most options in the world, and has the ability to say no more than anyone in the world. And Jeff Bezos was going to have to spend 12 to 16 weeks a year at HQ2 for several years. Do you really think the wealthiest man in the world was going to decide to hang out in Indianapolis three m- months a year? Yeah. yeah. You really think no, he was going to no, decide to roll no. in Columbus, Ohio? No. So here's here's the sad part. Or here, and this is how I did the analysis, my complicated academic analysis. The Bezos owns the Bezos own homes in Seattle, Los Angeles, DC, and New York. And that they can't do LA because it's too close. It geographically makes no sense. So I picked DC and New York. And guess what? All three headquarters of, of Amazon that were announced are within seven miles of where the Bezos own homes. This wasn't a contest. It was a con. Yeah. They gamified it so they could extract more funds from municipal fire, school, and police departments and transfer it into the, into the pockets of Amazon shareholders, including Mr. Bezos. I think it reflects a lack of code and character on the part of the board and Mr. Bezos himself. Okay, so let's talk about the cities then, because they were bending over backwards with all sorts of concessions that were bananas. It's like, why, and in some of these cities, I was just like, how how could they even possibly offer this up? So on both sides, it was kind of ridiculous, and particularly New York City. Like, how did did you think that the whole thing played out between uh, Bill de Blasio and Amazon? Well, okay, I thought it was awful, but in in the cities have played a part in this, and I think at some point they should hold hands and decide they're not gonna engage in this downward spiral. I mean, our election cycle is fairly short term, and no mayor, it's difficult for a mayor to resist detonating a prosperity bomb and being the guy or gal who brings Amazon to their city. So they end up doing stupid things. It's sort of like getting the Olympics, where it feels really fun for a while at the ribbon cuttings, and then eight and ten years later, when academics say, "Do the math," and they go, "This was just a really yeah, bad here's idea. a husk of a stadium." Yeah, yeah. this is yeah. this was just not worth it. And I think this is the, this is that on steroids, and they created this incredible circus that got them a ton of attention, got everyone drunk, and in my view, wasted a lot of people's times, but ended up with billions of dollars in subsidies. Now, now to their credit, Apple and Google are massively increasing the number of jobs in New York. They don't have yeah, their hand they, out. They don't have, exactly. So I think this is a really poor reflection on, um, on Amazon. Now, with respect to de Blasio and Cuomo, I would argue that they're the worst poker players in the world, that they should have said, look, boss, you want to be in New York. We know you want to be in New York. We'll give you something. We're not going to give you $3 billion. And to not realize that Queens which has the largest proportion of union members, was probably going to raise their hand and say, we're not up for going non-union. And Amazon has overtly said, we are not going to let unions into our warehouses or our headquarters. And also just personally, started a company called L2 in 2010 at NYU. We, grew, uh, we have 150 people there, 
high paying jobs, average salary, at least what Amazon is. According to de Blasio and Cuomo, that means I'm entitled to $19 million in tax breaks. So Do you my, get that? Did you get that? What do you think? <laughs> yeah. So my question is, yeah. where the hell is my helipad? <laughs> and if yeah. small business continues to be the engine of growth in our economy, and people laugh when I say that, but why am I any less entitled to those subsidies yeah. than Amazon? Well, before you go, I want to kind of turn back to the algebra of happiness. Yeah. If there's one takeaway that you uh, want your readers to have, what, sure. what would it be in this book? So uh, the one takeaway is the, the, the one finding from the largest study on happiness ever compiled, the longitudinal happiness, and it's the Harvard Grant Study, where they tracked 400 young men. They were 19 and 19, I think, 29. And by the way, the fact that they decided to track 400 men tells you about what they were thinking about yeah. at the time, like, oh, women's happiness? We don't really care about that. And they tracked everything on their physical attributes, the jobs they had, the relationships they were in, the food they ate. And then on a regular basis, they queried them in terms of their per personal satisfaction and happiness. And they had to swap out three principal scientists because the principal scientists kept dying. Mm -hmm. And 80 years later, the last of the 400 died. And they compiled this massive data set, and they came up with a 400-page study. And it has the best opening line of any academic uh, study in history, the best first sentence. And I'll come back to that. But the basic study was, or the basic findings was, simple, that happiness is a function of the depth and number of your relationships. Hmm. At work, do you feel, do you feel a sense of uh, accomplishment and respect? And not only that, but do others feel a sense of accomplishment and respect from you? With your friends, do you feel a sense of joy and camaraderie? And not only that, do you know they get a sense of joy and camaraderie from you? And finally, at home with your spouse, and with your kids, do they bring you a sense of real love and support? And not only that, do you know that they feel that sense of love and support from you? And it's just as important that you give as get. Those three things, the depth of your relationships in those three areas are the strongest indicators of success. And this first sentence that kind of summarizes everything, in sum, when they summarize this 400-page study, best opening line of any academic study is happiness is love, full stop. So if there's anything I would want people to take away from this, it's making small but steady investments in, uh, in, in your relationships, that economic success is the means, but the ends is, is economic security for you and your family such that you can spend time, more time with them, and again, enhance those relationships. Okay. Well, Scott, always interesting. Thank you for Thank coming you. back for and come back again. We'd love to have Will you back. Will do. Home. All right. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Exchange. This podcast was produced by Andrew D'Antonio and Freddie Joyner. Be sure to check out BreakingViews.com and subscribe to our various other podcasts, including The Views Room. Thanks for tuning in.